The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Well, hello, Genesis. Well, hello, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for asking. I have conversations with myself a lot. I'm glad you guys are here tonight. Uh, I know there's uh, some other things happening on an evening like this, but uh, I'm glad you came out early uh, to celebrate, to worship, and uh, just to be here in the midst of the community. So uh, we are in the midst of uh, a series called Jesus right now. We're walking through the story uh, of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we're around chapter uh, 3, and we're actually going to finish chapter 3. It's taken us nine weeks to get here, but we're going to finish chapter 3 tonight. So uh, before I get there, I wanted to give you a quick um, heads up, uh, as many of you know. By the way, if you're here for the very first time, you're not going to know this. Let me say thanks for coming. I'm glad you're here. But uh, one of the things that we have been asking and seeking the Lord together as a community is what does uh, God have in store? What does God have in mind uh, for our future, uh, the future of Genesis, that is, moving forward? We've been going at it now for a little over two years, and uh, meaning we started this thing called Genesis two years ago. So uh, the specific question we have been asking the Lord is, uh, would you be desirous to establish Genesis as a brand new independent church uh, here in the New England uh, culture, specifically this Boston area? And uh, for the past nine months, actually, I've been working with the elders of Hope Church and uh, myself and eight others uh, who comprised a task force uh, have been working very diligently um, uh, looking at some different towns, we've been basically turning over every stone that we could possibly think of as it relates to church planting and, and things like that. So uh, this morning, I actually turned in uh, a report. Uh, we finished up our study, we finished up our research, we finished uh, our recommendations, so to speak, and we passed off the task force that is passed off to the elders, uh, hey, this is what we sense the Lord is doing. And so over the next few weeks, the elders of uh, Hope Church and myself are going to be processing, uh, ultimately, not just the recommendation, but what God is doing. And I'm going to venture to say somewhere in the next uh, three, four weeks, uh, I'll be coming back to you and saying, hey, this is where we sense uh, the Lord is leading us as a community, and you'd certainly have an opportunity to, to speak into that as well. Uh, so this is, uh, we're coming to the end of a, uh, a lot of prayer, a lot of uh, seeking, a lot of asking questions, and uh, this morning was significant because it's now out of the task force hands. So uh, Jennifer Bates is somewhere around here. She was part of that task force. Liz Wettstein is somewhere here as well. And John Elwell, it's pretty blinding up here. So these are people I think are here. Uh, John Elwell was, uh, was part of that. Karen Vernamonti uh, was part of that task force. Um, a couple other people where I don't know if they're here right now. So uh, thanks to them for putting in a lot of hard work, a lot of meetings, a lot of research, phone conversations, and, and things like that. So uh, I'll be keeping you up to date uh, this week if you think about it. Um, I'm going to be traveling with a, a group of nine other men uh, to Raleigh, North Carolina uh, for a, a church planting boot camp, uh, which is going to take place on Wednesday and Thursday. And then my most excellent bride is going to fly into Raleigh, North Carolina. I've told the church that we've got stuff going on. This is a vacation, so... Just kidding. Um, we've got a pretty big day on Friday where uh, I've been going through uh, an assessment, so to speak, meaning uh, the network that we're seeking to work with is a network called Acts 29, and uh, they are a church planting network, and they've got it kind of figured out of what a church planter looks like. And so over the last uh, three, four months, 
I've submitted probably about 150 pages worth of material, personality profiles, theological stuff, pastoral stuff, life stuff, marriage stuff. They've been examining my life as if I'm applying for the CIA. And uh, this Friday is uh, the day where I'll sit with uh, some other folks, uh, kind of a panel, and uh, they'll interrogate me and my wife uh, ever so graciously and uh, carefully. And uh, by the end of that uh, assessment, so to speak, they're going to let us know, hey, we see that uh, this is God's call on you. Uh, we see this is a good gift set or a skill set or talent uh, that lines up well with what it means to be a church planter. Uh, there's a big difference of being a pastor and being a church planting pastor. And so that's part of the process that I have been going through personally uh, to identify where I fit uh, in that mix. So that's this week. Um, if you've been around the last few weeks, we started uh, a brand new life groups. And life groups are so key to health within our own community. We have a, a large community here, and uh, our large community is made up of a lot of small communities. And so... Uh, we really want you to be invested in one of those small communities called life groups where uh, you're learning to do life with other people, uh, loving, other each other, loving other people, allowing other people to speak into your life and vice versa. Uh, we started a trimester last week. Some of the life groups are closed because they capped at 10 or 11 or 12 people, but there are some life groups that are still open uh, for this first trimester. So uh, take a look. Uh, you can actually sign up at the, one of the computers in the back. Um, and uh, you can hopefully uh, still find a way to get into a life group. Let me uh, pray, and we've got a lot to get into in this Gospel of Mark, finishing chapter 3. God, we uh, are excited to be here, and uh, I give thanks that we have a reason to be here, that uh, you are a God who is good, you are a God who gives humanity, who gives each of us reason to have hope, that uh, you have set your affection on each of us, that you have given us meaning and purpose and significance and value and worth, and that we can know all of those things uh, in relationship with you. Uh, so, Father God, as we walk through this story tonight, uh, the third chapter in the Gospel of Mark, I just pray that uh, this story, your word, would speak, it would resonate uh, with where each individual is here uh, tonight. Father, I know that there's people here who have been maybe walking with you for a long time. God, I pray that you would meet them in the middle of their journey where they are. And, Father, I also know that there's people here who are on a journey but not yet have made a decision uh, to say, I want to live for you, Jesus. So, Father, would you meet them in the middle of where they are? And I pray that uh, tonight would be a, a night of uh, decisions being made uh, to live our lives uh, for something that is greater uh, and more significant uh, than just living for ourselves. So, God, would your word uh, please speak to us tonight in this place? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Mark chapter 3, that's where we're going to go. We're going to dive right in. If you remember last week, Jesus uh, upset the uh, religious people, the Pharisees, and uh, they came to him asking questions of, why don't you do this, or why are you doing this? And uh, Jesus' answer to them was uh, very profound, and he called them out on some stuff that they just didn't know what they were talking about. And so at the end of uh, this interaction with the Pharisees, they are so frustrated, they are so upset with this person, Jesus, that they walked away from the conversation uh, plotting to kill him. They were going to work with the Romans uh, to figure out a way to get rid of this person, Jesus. We're only in chapter 3. By the way, there's like 14 more chapters or 13 more chapters to go. And already by chapter 3, Jesus is having such a profound impact on the religious culture 
I'm not even talking about just secular culture, religious culture, that they want to get rid of him. So by chapter 3, verse 6, they are plotting his murder. We pick up chapter 3, verse 7. It goes like this. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake. Kind of goes in line. If someone's trying to kill you, might be a good time to step back and say, guys, it's, let's go fishing. Let's, let's step back from some of the heat here and go to the lake. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. A large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard he, uh, all he was doing, and many people came to him from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon, because of the crowd, uh, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For those of you who love to have like your personal space, like people get too close to you, you now have a verse to say, even Jesus like, had certain boundaries. So you have a verse now. It is uh, in Mark chapter 3. If people are getting in your space, you can be like, dude, I got a verse, back off. Okay? People from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Wherever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you, they're talking about demons here, fallen angels, are crying out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone who he was. The crowds are absolutely flocking to Jesus. And what Mark does here is he paints a picture from east and west and north and south. He names a bunch of different regions. People are coming now from all over the place to see this person Jesus. The word is spreading, his fame is spreading, and people want to be around this person, Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, clean, unclean, spiritual, unspiritual, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Everyone is, I mean, ethnic uh, diversity is happening here, uh, different backgrounds. I mean, it is amazing to see the floods of people from everywhere that are uh, coming to see this person, Jesus. And I'm as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, why not now? Why doesn't that happen now? I mean, Mark paints this picture that people are coming from every direction just to position themselves around this man, Jesus. So why doesn't that happen now? So either Jesus has dramatically changed, or maybe people have changed, but 2,000 years later, why doesn't it appear or why doesn't it seem that the crowds are flocking to Jesus as they did uh, 2,000 some odd years ago? I'm going to hold off on answering that question because I think Mark answers it for us. But I just want you to sit with that for a minute. What happened in the first century that just people were so enamored, they just wanted to be around him, to be literally touched so that they would be healed? Or they just wanted to hear what he had to say because his message was so profound, or they just wanted to see him just to see what he would do next. And what's going on 2,000 years later, if Jesus has not changed, he's still the Son of God, he's still the Messiah, he's still the Savior, he's still the one who makes us right with God, and I don't believe people have changed in 2,000 years. We're still sinners, we're still messed up, and we still need a God to rescue us. So if Jesus hasn't changed and people haven't changed, something is missing. One question you could ask yourself is, were people really flocking to Jesus uh, because they 
we're confessing him that you're God, uh, you are the Savior, you are the Messiah? Or were people flocking to the man who was known as the healer? It seems from what Mark is presenting that people were more interested in wanting to be healed by Jesus, not necessarily hear what Jesus excuse me, had to say. The only people so far, and not people, spirits, that are confessing Jesus, and in chapter, two, chapter 1 and chapter 2, the demons are like coming out of the closet. And this time, they come out and say, you're the son of God. So the only people so far, the spirits so far, that are conf- making a confession about Jesus is demons. And Jesus looks at the demons and says, stop talking. He rebuked them and said, be silent. Now, one would be like, well, at least something is confessing you as, as, as God, as, as God's son. So why would, you, why would Jesus quiet down the demons, so to speak? Well, one answer would be, I'm guessing they're not really the most ideal character witnesses. I'm thinking that the demons going around saying Jesus is God is uh, not the most helpful to uh, ultimately who he is and uh, his ministry and ultimately his mission. Second reason just might be demons may confess rightly who Jesus is, but their way of life directly opposed the person of Jesus. And I want you to catch this point because it's very uh, important that uh, it's not enough to correctly name or acknowledge Jesus, who he is, his power, or his authority. Demons can do that. I don't know if you remember a few months back we did a series called The Life Well Lived and we walked through uh, a letter called uh, James. And in James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, you believe, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek that James is speaking to the church here, you believe that there is one God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. He's speaking to the church saying, your doctrine, your orthodoxy is on par with demons. I hope you feel good about yourself. So it's not enough just to say, I believe something, because the demon's life, uh, ultimately they were bent on killing and destroying people, did not match up with Jesus or uh, his mission. So my question that I want to challenge us with is, it's not enough just to confess, yeah, Jesus is God's son. I I can have right orthodoxy. I, I can confess that. I can believe that but it never shows up in the lives that we lead. Meaning there must be a confession of right doctrine coupled with right living. There's a man named Timothy, uh, probably around the age of late 20s, early 30s. He's just planted a brand new church. And so Paul, his church planting coach, says, Timothy, writes him a letter. We have it saved in the Bible in the New Testament called 1 Timothy. And Timothy didn't really get it, so Paul had to send him a second letter, appropriately called 2 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, he gives this incredible charge to this young man named Timothy who's trying to set up shop, set up a brand new church. 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch, he's talking to Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers, meaning life coupled with right doctrine, right living coupled with right belief, right orthodoxy, right doctrine is a really big deal. 
It's huge. It's not enough just to say, I believe, but it doesn't show up in the way we live. Or there's certain people who are living really good lives and say, I don't, it doesn't really matter what I believe because ultimately I'm doing good things or I'm a good person. There has to be a marriage of the two. Guard, watch, protect the way you live and what you believe. So this is the question for us. Does what you confess actually match with the life you live? I'm going back to the question of why does he tell the demons to be quiet? Because anyone can confess that Jesus is God, but their life can be directly opposed to the person of Jesus or the work of God. So is what you confess, is it obvious? Is it crystal clear? Could someone look at the way you live your life and say, wow, their life matches up identical with what they say they believe? Because if we live really well, but we don't really care what we believe per se, then we could fall prey to, well, again, it doesn't matter what I believe, I'm a good person, and ultimately, you know, uh, living a good life is really what, it, what I'm kind of the center of my universe. I am my own God. It doesn't matter what I believe. And to the other person who says, well, I have right orthodoxy, right doctrine, right belief, but it doesn't show up in the way they live, then they fall prey to just becoming very pharisaical in the way they live. So it's got to be both married together, life and doctrine, uh, rooted ultimately in the person of Jesus. So I want to go back to my original question of why doesn't it seem that culture flocks to the person of Jesus now? I don't know if you've come up with your own answer, but why doesn't our culture seem at all engaged with wanting to know who the person of Jesus is? My thought, my answer is, show the world a community or an individual, a community that has both of right light, right living, and right doctrine rooted in the person of Jesus, and you will see individuals and communities changed. If we would model, if we would demonstrate right living, right doctrine, right orthodoxy, right belief, that is a life that is being changed, that is a life that's being transformed. I remember sharing this story, um, I think it was when we were going through the life well lived, because this is where I, I took the title from. Bill Clinton uh, was president at the time, and Mother Teresa was one of the speakers at the National Prayer Breakfast, the president uh, Al Gore uh, was there, uh, Congress, House of Representatives, I mean, I mean, all your highly elected officials together in one room. And Mother Teresa, who stands all like five foot one, stands up on the podium and lambasts our American government over the one issue of abortion and says, you are killing millions and millions and millions of children. Okay, that's not the appropriate time, most would say, to give that message. Mother Teresa should be politically correct and blah, 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 blah. An interviewer comes up to Bill Clinton and says, how do you feel, what Mother, how do you feel about what Mother Teresa just said about abortion because she was speaking to you? And Bill Clinton said one of the most profound things I think he's ever said is you can't argue with a life well lived. Mother Teresa knew what she believed, and her life matched up with exactly 
who she claimed to be in relationship with. You can't argue with a life well lived. Jesus is most clearly seen in people who look like Jesus. So maybe it's the crowds don't show up or aren't as engaged or flocking, so to speak, because they're wondering, well, where is Jesus? That might be the question the church has to wrestle with. So Jesus has not changed. People have not changed. But I believe what our culture needs is people who will confess Jesus and their lives will match up with that confession. So how do I have both? Right living, right doctrine. Mark goes on in his story. Jesus went up on the mountainside. I'm in verse 13. Went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the surname Peter. And Peter means rock. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. I would have loved to have like a Friday night out with the sons of thunder. Would have loved to seen what these guys would have done on a Friday night personalities, Jesus says, you guys, sons of thunder, you're going to run with me. I need you to part of this 12. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. That's a cool name, Thaddeus. There should be more kids named Thaddeus. That's a strong name. Instead, we name like kids Tristan and, you know, things like that after. Just kidding. That's my son. I can say that. Um, Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Right away, Mark wants us to know that there was one in the group who would ultimately betray the person of Jesus. The question that I was asking is, how do you have right living and coupled married to right doctrine being with Jesus? There's a difference of hanging around Jesus and actually being with Jesus. This is what the call on these 12 men's life was. Because there was a lot of people who were following Jesus, intrigued to see what trick he would do next, what miracle would take place. Who would get healed, or maybe they would get healed. There's a difference of just following Jesus from a distance, kind of just the curious person, to Jesus' call on these men was to be with me, to be with Jesus. Jesus called 12. There's a few significant numbers for those of you who love numerology and love to study the significance of numbers. Three is a pretty significant number. Seven is pretty significant. Seven, or 12 is a pretty significant number. 40, 144. Don't like try these on lottery if you play the tickets. I'm not promising you anything. These are significant numbers. It's interesting that he names not 10, not 13, but he names 12. For those of you who are familiar with Old Testament, there was 12 tribes that were very significant to the Jewish nation. And so what most people would agree with is that these 12 men are significant uh, because they are being seen as the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel 
and which is really cool, in which Jesus is now standing or presiding over as the leader. The twelve came to him. When he called, they came. They responded. I don't want you to have this image that they were just mindless robots. Like, oh, I don't know anything better to do with my life. They made a decision. They didn't have to respond. When he called to them, they, in that moment, they had a decision. This was a decision that was really just transferring from following him to truly being with him. We will live with him. We will put ourselves under his teaching, his leadership, his authority. Where he goes, we will go. What he does, we will do. What he says, we will say. We will be fully with Jesus. Whether on the mountaintop or in a garden of agony. This is what it meant for them to be fully with Jesus. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, meaning a sent one. That's what an apostle is, to send. So Jesus calls these 12 men uh, in order that he would be with Jesus, that they would be with Jesus. This is first and foremost. And then secondly, that they would go out. They would be sent Guess what their first thing that they get to do is? They get to go preach, and they get to go cast out demons. Okay, these guys are as wet behind the ears as you could possibly get. Like, they were just new to this whole Jesus thing uh, a couple months in, and Jesus looks at them and says, be with me, and now go preach and go cast out demons. I mean, we sometimes in the church have a hard time getting people to come just set up a room, nonetheless go go out preaching, and go out casting out demons. This is the difference of people who are really being with Jesus. Because you see what he, he does. And I can do that. He's given me the power. He's given me the authority to go and do that. I mean, this is not an easy gig. Go preach. Go tell people to repent. Go tell people to turn away from living for themselves and turn to the kingdom of God. And when demons oppose you, just tell them to get the heck out. Not an easy gig first time out, but this is what Jesus says. Be with me and preach and drive out demons. Now it's easy to be, to jump to what they're supposed to do than the first part of who they're supposed to be with. I just want you to camp out there for a minute. What does it really mean to be a man or to be a woman who is with Jesus? If you've hung out in the church for maybe more than a few weeks, you might be like, well, I heard you're supposed to pray. I think you're supposed to do some things in your Bible and maybe some other spiritual disciplines like not eat food for a set amount of time or uh, you're supposed to do certain things. That's what it means to be with Jesus. Those are good things. Those are helpful. Those will certainly help your maturity in terms of growing spiritually. But is that what it really means to be with Jesus? If I read my Bible, I'm covered. I've been with Jesus. I want to give you a verse because this is the same uh, language that Jesus is using of be with me or abide in me. The Gospel of John, uh, chapter 15, verse 5 says this. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, 
he will bear much fruit. I want you to catch from this. Catch this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you read the prior verses and some verses afterwards, Jesus is calling his disciples to be with me or to abide in me. And he gives them a bold statement of, you can't do anything apart from me. And there's two types of people. There's one type of person who will live to prove that wrong. No, Jesus, I'll show you exactly what I can do. I'll show you what I can accomplish without you. And you will actually be able to do some things, by the way. I just wonder how meaningful and significant and eternal they would actually be. And then there are people who've said, I recognize that to be true. And I'm not going to live my life apart from abiding with or being with the person of Jesus. So what does it mean to be with Jesus? That your life is abiding in his and vice versa. That you don't do anything apart from the person of Jesus. The heart of discipleship is really twofold. It's being with Jesus and then being sent out to accomplish what he's called us to do, his mission. And I love that he's invited us to be part of that. He could have just said, hey, be with me. I'll take care of the rest. I love that he has invited you and me, us as a community, to be part of what his mission for humanity is. To be with him and then to be ones that are sent. And I love that being with Jesus always leads to service that benefits others. We're not called to be just on the receiving end only, but to be channels by which Jesus can reach others through us. It's both. It's being with him, but then being sent out so that everything that Jesus has given to you, you can give away. He gives so that we might give. He teaches so that we might teach. Blesses so that we might bless. He leads so that we might show others the way. He tells us a story. He gives us a story so that we might be storytellers. Being with Jesus leads us to serving, to loving, to engaging, to investing our lives in other people. You cannot be with Jesus without feeling compelled to go and bless other people to love, to serve, to engage other people. Which person are you? Okay, I'll give you two more. There's some people who, they love the being, they just are awful at the doing. And then there's some people who are like all about the doing, but really have a hard time being. I am the latter. I find myself just, I love doing, I love getting out there, I love the mission, I love, and sometimes I hear uh, the voice of God just speaking to my heart saying, when's the last time you were just being with me? Yeah, you're working, yeah, you're doing, you're moving, you're running. It's a real scary thing, like when you're out there and you're running and you look to the left, to the right, and you're like, oh my gosh, where'd Jesus go? Can you please keep up? I'm not supposed to keep up with Jesus, by the way. Uh, or Jesus is not supposed to keep up with me. I'm supposed to follow him. So which are you? The love just to be. I love being in my own room, read my Bible 10 hours a day, and then praying another 10 hours, and then four hours meditating on everything that just took place in the previous 20 hours. 
and have absolutely no interaction with people who are alive. It has to be both. A person who is being with Jesus, but a person who has been with Jesus cannot help but go and be that sent one, to be the hands, the feet, the heart, the mind of Jesus. I love that they do it. Okay, these guys, you're going to hear some stories as we go through this gospel of they were preaching, they were casting out demons. I wonder what it was like the very first time when they encountered a demon. And they're like, is this really going to work? And it did. Why? Because they had the power and authority that Jesus had given them to do these things. But this question, did they really be? Were they with Jesus? Okay, Jesus has now died, and these guys are starting the church. A young group of guys in their mid to late 20s are preaching to people. They're standing in like the temple and the synagogue, and they're going after it. They're telling people, You've killed Jesus, you need to repent, you need to give your life to God. And they're having this conversation now with these religious leaders. And they're preaching to the religious authorities. And this is what the religious authorities say. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished that they took and took note that these men, guess what? had been with Jesus. There's lots of guys who can probably preach until they're blue in the face. But it means absolutely nothing if they just haven't been with Jesus. There was something significant about this group of men. So much so that when they were doing the very thing that Jesus told them to do, the people looked at them and just said, wow, you guys have no education, you're fishermen, first of all. But they said, you know what? You look like you have been men who have been around the person of Jesus. This is the first part of, um, or middle part of Mark chapter 3. It's an invitation that Jesus gave 12 men, consequently us as well, to be with him and then to be ones that would be sent to the world, to the culture, to people around us. He goes on in uh, verse chapter uh, 3, verse 20. Before I read these verses, let me ask, is there anyone in your, here that you're the outcast of your family? Like you're the black sheep. You're the individual that people are like, oh my gosh, they're coming to this Christmas shindig. You're like the embarrassment to your family, okay? You don't have to raise your hands, but if that resonates with you, like, you're like, oh my gosh, that's me. I didn't want to admit it, but everyone in my family thinks I'm the, the nut job. Um, you're in really good company because this was Jesus in his family, okay? This was, Jesus was considered like the wingnut of sorts uh, amidst his family. Verse 20 and 21, then Jesus entered a house and again the crowd gathered so that he had his disciples uh, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. The crowds are coming so much so that they can't even uh, take time for food. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, this is speaking of Jesus, he is out of his mind. His own family is now looking at Jesus. He's already being like slandered by religious people, and who knows what people in the crowds are saying. Now his own family is saying, he has gone insane. He has lost it. 
and they are deeply concerned about Jesus. And so when it says they've come, they came to take charge of him, that means they came to demonstrate authority over Jesus and say, we're pulling you back from what you're doing because you've gone nuts. You need medication. You've lost your mind. Now, Mark does something interesting. He picks up on another story, okay? He's going to transition. So the image, remember, this is a story, okay? So Jesus' family is saying, you're nuts. We're going to come take charge of you. Now, in between when they actually left where they were and are going to where Jesus is, this is the story that takes place. Mark chapter 3, verse 22 and 30, through 30. This is great. His family's just called him insane. Listen to what the teachers from Jerusalem have to say. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, well, he's possessed by Beelzebub. It's another way of saying he's Satan. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. I want you to pay attention to exactly what Jesus does with these guys. They've just accused him of being the prince of demons, a.k.a. Satan, in relationship, not with God, but in relationship with Satan, that they're somehow buddies working together. Pay attention to how Jesus responds. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables, stories. How can Satan drive out Satan? I love Jesus' questions. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one has enter, uh, can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. He's telling him the story. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. I reiterate, all the sins of men and blasphemies will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. And he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. This has like caused many people to lose a lot of sleep in their life. Did I just commit the eternal sin Oh my gosh, am I in trouble? Am I out? Is it over? Did I just do that thing that I've read about in the Bible? Is like there's one sin that can't be forgiven. Did I just do that? I'll cover that in a second. They accuse him and say Jesus is only able to do what he does because he's possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebub or Satan. Jesus responds to these guys. Well, he speaks to them in a parable and tells them a story. And he starts with a very obvious question of how can Satan drive out Satan? I wonder if like anyone in the religious crowd would be like, wow, why didn't we think about that before we accused him? I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious question. How can Satan drive out Satan? His argument is, I've just cast out demons, and if I'm doing that by Satan's power, then Satan is actually working against himself. So guys, let's think about this for a minute. If I'm really in cohorts with Satan... Either Satan's a very confused individual, maybe he's the insane one, and he's just dividing himself, and he gives the imagery of how can a kingdom or how can a house that is divided, how could it possibly stand? And Jesus' point is very simple. It can't. It will crumble. It will fall. 
He's trying to help them to understand their accusation is not even close to being logical. That's just the very first question of, guys, how can Satan fight against Satan? He continues, tells them a story of a strong man in his house. If you're going to rob a strong man, what I love is Jesus is the robber. In this parable, Jesus is the one who is the thief. He is the the robber here. If you're going to rob a strong man's house, you better tie him up first before you take his possessions. Point being, Jesus is stronger than the strong man who owns the house. And he talks about this possessions. How can he go into and take what is possessed, taking the possessions in the house and release them and set them free if the strong man has not been tied up? And so what Jesus is making very clear is, I am stronger than Satan. And I am going into his house. And I am releasing. I am setting free anyone who has been possessed by demons. I am casting them out. These are people now who are free. I said I was going to mention the eternal sin, and I'm going to cover that in a second, but as I'm sitting this, uh, with this text this week, uh, asking the, the question of um, how is it possible to reach people who just apparently have really hard hearts? Like, how is it, these guys are, they're coming after Jesus pretty hard. They seem pretty stubborn of heart. How is it possible that you and I can really love and engage and reach people who apparently just have really hard hearts towards God. They might not even have a hard heart. They might just have a heart that is completely indifferent towards the things of God. How can you and I be part of reaching people like Jesus, these guys are accusing him of? How can we be part of reaching them? Well, I don't know... Uh, a couple of you passed along this, uh, the article to me, and um, this was something that uh, the Gallup, uh, the folks at uh, Gallup who put out some uh, reliable polls, um, they did some research uh, over the last uh, few years. They put out a really long paper of this uh, actually last year, and just recently, uh, this past week, they published uh, a very succinct article on what they found of the state of the states uh, as it relates to faith as it relates to religion. And this was their findings that uh, the top 10 least religious states in America, now I know this will be shocking, so (laughs) bear with me. Uh, I don't know if you can see it clearly on the map. Well, the white states are the least religious. Uh, The heavily, uh, like the dark green, uh, again, not shocking, because that's kind of the heart of the Bible belt, Uh, is uh, they're very green. What's interesting is the top 10 least religious, okay, this is not just Christianity. This is people who are just anti-God. It's not talking about Christianity or Buddhism or Hindu or or Jewish. I mean, it's just people who are just anti-God. Vermont is number one. New Hampshire, number two. Maine, number three. Massachusetts, number four. Alaska, five. Washington, six. Oregon, seven. Rhode Island, uh, eight. Nevada, uh, number nine. And Connecticut, um, number 10. 
I don't know how well you know your geography, but there's only six states that make up New England. The top four uh, are New England states. Number eight and number 10 are also New England states. Point being, all of New England across our country is considered to be the most, the uh, least religious states in our country. Now, if you go to um, uh, where Gallup uh, posted these things, there's been a trail of commentary and um, when you hit around like 150, it gets pretty nasty. Uh, I mean, people are just going after each other. Uh, these are some of the comments that were left. Massachusetts has one of the highest uh, average IQs of the United States. Massachusetts has one of the highest rates of education with advanced degrees. Massachusetts is one of the leading states in inventions and patents. Massachusetts is tied for the least religious states. Go figure. This is another comment. Good to know. I'll stay away from the dark green states full of ignorant inbreds who wish for Jesus ponies to return with their rapture. Another comment. Hmm. High IQ, high rate of education, not very religious, makes perfect sense to me. Another comment. Good. This is one of the best reasons to live here, speaking of Massachusetts. The graph is great. It could also be a graph of productivity, crime, IQ test scores. It would look exactly the same. The worse the place, the more religious they are. This person was making a case that if you look at the heavily, uh, the dark green states, you'll find uh, those things that he mentioned of productivity and crime and, and test scores and such. I thought being religious meant that there were standards of conduct, morality, and all of that. How do these religious states account for their high divorce rates? Massachusetts has one of the lowest in the nation. There's an answer for that, by the way. Several of the dark green states can't seem to get their marriage act together. How do these religious states explain their lack of charity? The bulk of the states in the dark green suck from the federal uh, trough, getting more than uh, they put in. So far, I see no clear advantage to being religious. Another comment. I'm originally from California, but have lived in Mass for a decade now. California is also not very religious, but never there did I feel the disdain and disgust towards Christianity that I do here. I'd like to think that the highly educated, intelligent people wouldn't stereotype or assume that everyone of a certain religion is a fundamentalist wacko, but they seem to be here. Also, it doesn't help that it's extremely difficult to find churches here that are interesting, inspirational, educational, or up with the times. I'm not going to read all 360 of these. What's really was sad to me in, in, in reading uh, more so the comments um, was very interesting that uh, all the comments were directed towards Christians. This was in a study on being religious, not being Christian. Um, but what people go after most is if you talk about Jesus, uh, you will set yourself up to be opposed. What was sad to me as you wade through all of the comments, and there was many, um, the hate that was being spewed by Christians towards uh, the non-religious who were poking fun. See, when I read this article and went through the study and the results, uh, I was just incredibly sad that so many people would be so hard towards God. 
But then as I thought about it, I was like, wow, I'm so excited that I get to live here. You see, this is why churches need to be planting churches that will plant churches that will plant churches. There needs to be someone, a church community that will stand up and say, we'll do it different. We'll do it better. We will love the culture around us. Why? Because we've been a people who have been with Jesus. And you cannot help but be a people or a community if you've been with Jesus. You cannot help but have a heart for the people around you. Sometimes we gloss over John 3.16 when it says, For God so loved the world, we're thinking to ourselves, oh, just like our part of the world. Meaning people who look like us and think like us and act like us. No, he loved everybody. And if you're going to be with Jesus, and that means that you will have a heart for the culture and the community and the people that are around you. I would love for Gallup to come back 10 years from now. And my heart for us, this community, would be let's, let's, let's do it so well that Massachusetts won't be in the top 10 10 years from now. And the question is, do you believe that you actually live here for a reason? Some of you may be born here your whole life. Some of you came here for school. Do you think that you're actually here in this room, in this state, for a reason? Do you think it's just an accident that you happen to be here? Or do you think that somehow maybe God in his divine wisdom said, I'm going to place you in the most least religious state that he would want to use you to have an impact and love and serve and engage the people around you. See, I actually believe when I moved here from Chicago four and a half years ago, there was a reason. And I believe that God wants to use us, use this community to make a difference on a graph and a chart like this. This is the question that I asked you. How can we reach people who are apparently so hard towards God? You know why I asked that? Because Jesus did it so well. When they came and accused him of being Satan, you're in relationship with Satan, Jesus could have just blown him out of the water. Literally. He could have been like, zap, enough of you. But you know what he did? He asked a question, and then he told a story. I don't want you to miss that, because what Jesus is doing is he's trying to win people He's not trying to win arguments. Jesus is a winsome person. Why are people flocking to him? Because he was a winsome individual. Why was he so winsome? It's because he cared about people. Are you a winsome person? I remember when my theology professor says, don't win arguments, win people. I remember I was doing some street evangelism, sharing our faith with a friend of mine. And uh, we engaged this guy, and we're talking to him, and it was going really well. And then my buddy uh, decided to pull like a Jekyll and Hyde and started getting really antagonistic towards this guy. And this guy responded, and they were literally just going at it, like fighting, like verbally yelling at each other. And I'm just kind of just watching this unfold, thinking I want to hit this guy and uh, save the guy that we were trying to talk to. And so afterwards, uh, they literally, we just walked away. And so I just said, how do you think that went? And uh, he's, 
I was pretty good. I think I made my points really clear. I was like, huh. Well, because it appeared to me, uh, and I can't say what I said, but it appears to me that you were pretty rude. You are pretty much an idiot and did nothing to help the cause of the gospel actually got in the way. That's just my opinion. So many Christians, people who claim to believe in Jesus, are not winsome individuals. If we want to have an impact on the culture, the community, the people around us, be winsome. Be a person who is a winsome individual. Obvious question is, well, how do you do that? Well, be with Jesus. Because you can't help but be with him and have a transformation of, I just care about people. I'm not trying to make my opinion known. I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm not trying to convince them that they're right or wrong. I'm just trying to win them. Which means I will ask questions rather than start by condemning. I will tell them a story to challenge them to think logically or intellectually about what they're saying. Not to make them feel stupid. He started with a question. He told them a story. That's how we can begin to win people here in our culture who apparently are very hard towards the things of God. Hard or at least indifferent. Jesus mentioned that there was a sin that was an eternal sin. I'm going to be very quick because uh, it's time to, to finish. And what I love about what Jesus does in being a winsome person is he shared with them the really good news. All sins are forgiven. Blasphemies, forgiven. He shares with them the good news that God forgives. People who have been hard towards God, if they turn towards God, they're forgiven. I look at the Apostle Paul. He himself says, I was a blasphemer. I hated God. I hated the church. Actually, he didn't hate God. He just had a very messed up way of showing his love for God in killing the church and killing Christians. But when he met Jesus, his life was forever changed, forever different, that a blasphemer says, I was forgiven. Jesus makes very clear. He loved them enough to say, this is the good news, but the bad news is, if you don't repent from being hard-hearted towards the things of God, towards the work of Jesus towards the person of the Holy Spirit, if you deny and continue to reject willfully again and again and again, that is a sin that will not be forgiven. But the good news is, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you still have the ability to make a decision or a choice to say, I'm turning from this and I'm turning towards God. But I will be honest, people who die and their heart is still hard, set against God, it is a sin that is, will not be forgiven. Not because God did not want to forgive them, but because that, got, that individual did not want to step into and receive God's forgiveness. Thus, they are separated from forever, for eternity, from God in hell. Some genius on here left a comment that says, let them all go to hell. Really? That's how you feel? I have some thoughts on where you might be. (laughs) 
Jesus gave them the good news, but he also was honest and said, if you continue this course that you're on, hard-heartedness towards God, refusing to accept the things of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, you deny God, you will be separated from him forever. You make the choice. You make the decision. Jesus finishes um, his, this chapter here with a great invitation, and I want to finish uh, our time with this. It's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 31, 35. Because he's, he's talking about um, a new family. His, his parents or his family has arrived on the scene. They're coming to get him because he's insane. Then Jesus, mother and brothers now arrived and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they, said, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Well, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Notice this is never like preached on Mother's Day, right? No one would ever dare preach Jesus saying, well, who is my mom? Anyways. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then there was silence. No one knew what to say. And so he looked around the house in the room that he was in, and he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus redefined what the family unit looked like. Not based on biology, but based on spirituality. You have to understand this was incredibly shocking and incredibly freeing. No matter what culture you're from, no matter what ethnicity you're from, whatever your background may be, be, Jesus right here through the doors wide open. Whoever does the will of God is in the family of God. The obvious question is, well, what is the will of God? It's Jesus. To know Jesus, to be in relationship with Jesus. That's the will of God. You don't have a choice to whom you were born to. Maybe a hundred years from now we might have that technology, but we don't now. And we haven't for 6,000 some odd years. You do have a choice if you will be part of the family of God. And this is the invitation that Jesus leaves for us. And by the way, some of you might have phenomenal families. Some of you might not. And it might be incredibly comforting to know that you have a new family, another family called the family of God. There's a great verse, Psalm 27, 10, says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And to someone in our culture who walks away from their Hindu faith, their Muslim faith, and are literally rejected by their family, disowned, written off for dead, this is really good news. To know that my biologicals have written me off as dead but God has received me into his family. It's hard for us in our context to understand this, but to people of the day and even in our culture where you get kicked out or killed if you make a decision for Jesus. This is extremely good news that you have another family. 1 John chapter 1, verse 12, or John 1, uh, chapter 12, verse 12 and 13 says this, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
you receive Jesus, you're part of God's family. And this is the invitation that Jesus wants every single person on the planet to receive. Tonight, as we would celebrate communion, I leave that question, where are you with Jesus? Following at a distance or up close? Being, abiding with him, saying, send me. Thank you for putting me in New England. Are you a person who's maybe still hard-hearted? You might not be accusing Jesus of being Satan, but your heart is just in a place of indifference or stubbornness towards the things of God. You're one moment, one decision away from making the most important decision of your life. To receive the forgiveness that God gives to those who turn to Jesus. And welcome to the family of God. It's not a biological thing, it's a spiritual thing. Let me uh, pray for us. And I want you to sit with that question of where are you with Jesus? Make a decision. Draw a line in the sand tonight. I won't follow at a distance. I will abide. I will be and be sent to be hands, feet, heart, mind. If it's the hard-heartedness, it's just a refusal to acknowledge God. Acknowledge him in this place. Confess. Jesus, you're God. Your life, your death, your resurrection is everything I need to be right with you. Father, please, I just uh, pray that uh, people have been hearing from you. And Father, because uh, you have been speaking through Scripture, and just your voice has been speaking to people, that there would be an incredible response tonight from every single person in this community. Father, for those who make decisions to truly just go from following at a distance to truly being or abiding, God, let it be so real, so tangible in a way that it's never even been experienced before. And God, as we would be with you, you would infuse our heart with your heart, that we would look at the people and the families and the community and the culture around us where you've placed us, strategically placed us here in New England. And we would just love and we would serve and we would be winsome to those around us. Father, I pray that there would be confessions tonight of those who have just rejected you their whole life that tonight in this moment there would be an acceptance of Jesus Christ as God's Son, the Savior. A new relationship would begin. No longer separated from God, but now a child, a son or a daughter of you, Father.
as you guys feel led, come and celebrate uh, communion with us tonight. This is a time for those who've made a decision to be with Jesus in relationship with him, um, to celebrate his life, a sinless life, a perfect life that he lived for us, to remember a death that uh, he died on a cross to pay a penalty for our sin as our substitute, and to celebrate that death could not hold him that on the third day he was alive, resurrected, that those who would place their hope, faith, trust in Jesus would also have life, now and forever, forgiveness of sins. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.